0: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury.
1: Have you reached a verdict? verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David
2: welcome back everybody thank you for joining us today this is a truly momentous occasion not just for the podcast because it's our first uh, non-fisher david guest but also it's a it's a large deal for me personally because today i have the pleasure of introducing the world so to speak to harvey settler who is many things to me and many things to many others but among them he is a uh, a mentor He is an adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Law in appellate advocacy, and he's a longtime appellate practitioner with immense experience on the criminal side and just nearly just as much on the civil side. So without further ado, let's at least welcome aboard Harvey. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing wonderful. Pleasure to be here with you guys.
2: Yeah, Harvey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, the the pleasure is definitely all ours, and I think the the listeners ultimately are going to be the one to get the value here. Let me, I I want you to introduce yourself, but before you do, I want to give the the listeners a bit of background on you. So you spent the majority of your professional career in the appellate division of the Miami Dade Public Defender's Office, which I would say for you, so you don't need to say for yourself because you're too humble, is among the nation's elite public defender officers to begin with for trial and appellate work. But the appellate division in particular, uh, some of the people that have come through that office, yourself included, have really accomplished tremendous things on not just the, the local state stage, but even the national stage. You are one of the few who can claim that they have been to the United States Supreme Court on a criminal defense issue and prevailed, and not just prevailed, but unanimously nine, nothing in the Rehnquist court. And a little bit of interesting trivia for everyone, at least for me, um, The opinion of that, that was JL, right? Florida versus JL, a 2000 case, which the opinion was written and announced by none other than Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So pretty powerful. And I know we're gonna delve into all of that, but um, maybe take a little time. I mean, you're born and now you're here. Fill in the gaps for the listeners. How did you get here? What do you do? Introduce yourself for everybody.
0: Uh, Before law school, I'm from down here. And before law school, I got a PhD a master's and then a PhD and then I did a uh, I I got my my doctorate at the University of Kansas and then I did a postdoc fellowship at Vanderbilt and then I worked for the US Congress for just about a year we were interning with them and then all of a sudden the 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 political winds changed and everybody left Washington including me Uh, and so I came my father was an attorney down here for 50 years and over 50 and my cousin's a long time attorney so it was a natural thing for me to come down here and go to the university of miami law school which i did do i like i really like law school a lot of people you know they were they were anxious to get out and do things and i absolutely appreciate that but i was coming at it a little bit different because i was older right i mean i i think uh i was probably i could have been conceivable i could have been 10 years older than the, the students at the law school i really liked it i mean there were a lot of things that that are kind of crazy about law school but in general I did when I finished there I clerked for two years at the third DCA for judge Hubbard who was the former chief judge there of course but judge Schwartz had sort of occupied that seat for a long long time so I spent two years down there and then uh, and I was pretty good friends with judge Hubbard and he basically said it's time you don't want to be typecast you need to kind of go out there and start doing things. Right. Uh, and he had been the former public defender of Miami, of Miami, Miami Dade, and so it was. And I knew people in the in the office and in the appellate division, so it was a natural thing for me to take the transition to doing there. And I really liked it, as Jordan, as you just said, It was a wonderful office in of the division. These folks are just incredibly bright, and something that I never had to deal with that you two. And your listeners have to deal with uh, is is overhead, right. And scheduling and things like that. These are, you know, they're the necessary part of practice for most of most of us. I didn't have to deal with that, uh, and that freed me up to do what I felt was pure law. Issues would come in, we would work on it. Sometimes we work on it together. The only thing about the office that was difficult is, understandably so, it's very busy. You know, we had a caseload that was enormous. When I started with the office, we had 80, 90, as I recall, or so appeals that had been dismissed by the 3rd District because they weren't (laughs) prosecuted. And I started, uh, I did a seminar, which is similar to what John, you and I were talking about a few moments ago. I did a seminar for the Day County Bar Association on appellate practice, and I had Judge Schwartz, and I had... Uh, Judges Pearson and Hubbard, and I had Ted. Well, these names aren't going to necessarily mean a lot to you, but they were the, our finest. Bruce Rogo, uh, uh, Roy Black. I mean, it was just wonderful. The the people that I had compiled to, for this seminar. It was an all day thing, and <coughs> the hook of the seminar is that you had the opportunity to take an appeal right from the public defender's office. At you know, it didn't. It, you weren't going to be paid. But it was your opportunity to work with some of the attorneys in the PD's office. They were our cases; we had responsibility for them. But you would do the work, and you would do the oral argument, and you would sign the brief.
3: Really? So you were allowing private attorneys, essentially. Right. They were
0: essentially special assistant public defenders at that time. We didn't really have that. And the beauty of it is, so to speak. Yeah. And the beauty is, we got we got rid of the entire backlog in just because of that seminar, and that was a really nice thing.
2: Now, how many years did you i know you retired from that office but how many years was your tenure
0: i was there for about 30 with with the the state with i'm sorry with the dca be like 30 some years and 31 years of state practice and in that time plus the i now do private uh appellate work do a lot of civil now because it was it's different and i enjoy it very much uh, I've done something like 1,400, 1,500 appeals to all levels of court, and it's it's great. So I really enjoyed this kind of work. I have a, a tremendous amount of, of, of admiration for attorneys who can do trial work or or, or office you know, negotiation practice. This
3: was the best fit for me. Sure. You know, it's interesting you say that because you look at us like you have respect and admiration for us. I'm the alternative. I look at you guys as... One, I could never be an appellate lawyer to the level that you guys are. But I look at it with such high respect, the quality of writing, the advocacy, the approach, how you handle the appeals like it is definitely for certain people. I'm not one of those. So I, I look at you guys and Jordan as well because he's you know He, he can do both. Right. He can do both. And and I think so, he, he excels at the appellate level because he's gotten some good favorable rulings on appeals for our practice, new trials uh, repeatedly, uh, you know, um, injunctive relief. And so, uh, like, for me, you guys are probably, I would say, the most important part because you guys correct errors and wrongs at the trial level for us. It could be, or or to, or to uphold the verdict.
2: Well, I appreciate you lumping me into, uh, into the group of Harvey, but if anything, I'm living in his shadow and uh, hoping one day to... Billy's shoes, because all you've accomplished in your career, I'd be proud to look back on my own and say I've done half that when it's all said and done. But uh, I want to pivot a little bit because I feel like I'm one of the few out there in the South Florida area who's had the privilege of working alongside you or at least having an opportunity to be an apprentice of sorts and see how you work, given that you were kind enough to let me intern for you in the appellate division of the Miami-Dade PD's office for a while. And also, I was your student at the University of Miami School of Law. I took your appellate advocacy class and you were my direct coach when I was part of that moot court board. So I've seen how you work through problems and solve them in written and oral form. And I, to this day, constantly hearken back to words of advice and wisdom you've given me. So let's kind of shed some light for the listeners, because I think a lot of the trial lawyers out there have this image of an appellate practitioner. You know, he or she's off in some distant tower or dungeon, <laughs> as it were, and, and they're just right. trolling through issues and they don't want to be bothered with people. But I will share, you know, from working with you and seeing how others like, you know, Stephen Weinbaum, you know, and, he, and others are I mean, it's a very collegial environment, even in the appellate division. And you guys used to openly embrace the trial lawyers coming in in the first instance before the issue had crystallized, so to speak. And uh, they would solicit your input and feedback to help shape issues. And maybe you can shed some light on, you know, a long career of helping trial lawyers avoid landmines, so to speak. Well,
0: as, as you know, Jordan. And by the way, let me just take a moment here because you're kind enough to say some very nice things about me. I, I've, I have had the chance of working with Jordan for a number of years, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, what we did in the in, in the public defender's office in the appellate division, which again it was a it was a marvelous experience for me uh, is we had a we had what to call the boss of the week and that was the attorney in in the division and it would change each week uh, that would that would basically be on call for any trial attorneys that had questions about things or anyone from the public or any attorneys you could call our office and you could speak to the boss of the week and then the boss would then go around and find attorneys who have worked in that area. In addition to that, if I got an appeal, the, the starting point, as you said, Jordan, is I always contacted the trial attorney. Because you guys know best the case. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's got to start there. Right. Uh, we used to, and I don't know if they still do it, but we used to have a, what was called a trial information sheet, which would go to the trial attorney, and that's how we would even find out about your case. And you would tell us what the issues that you thought needed to be addressed. Now, of course, you didn't prevail. I don't want to say, you know, obviously not you, but generally, the, or else it wouldn't be coming to us. Uh, and so uh, very often, you know, there's uh, the emotional side of things that, sh- that in some way, uh, you or the client was wronged about a ruling that the trial court made. And so we had to kind of back off a little bit and look at this thing in a more objective way. Right. Uh, I've always thought of appellate attorneys, not that we're anything special. We're kind of like surgeons. You are the doctor for the <clears> client, <throat> for, the, for the patient. You take care of him or her. Uh, you know all these. And if a problem arises that uh, you need addressed, you might call in a surgeon for the limited and, and, and express purpose of doing whatever the surgery is. And once the surgery is over, the client go, the, the, the patient goes back to your care. And that's kind of at least the way we would think of it. It's not always that big because as Jordan, as you said, there is an, an absolutely definite role that appellate attorneys can play to work alongside trial attorneys, but it's your case. right? So ultimately, at least the way I look at it, you make the call, but we could be there to help you make the call that's that's gonna end up working best for the case. And so- Yeah, and
2: I, th- I think in private practice, especially on the civil side of it now, having done it for a few years, um, I think trial lawyers refer to that role as like trial support. Yes. And there's a lot of appellate specialists out there who promote their services, not just for plenary appeal or you know, petitions for writs, but in a trial support capacity, and I think what I would say to the listeners out there, if you're a trial lawyer, who's a part of a small or even a solo firm, um, whether it's ego or fear or uncertainty of how that kind of collaborative relationship would work, I would encourage everyone out there, if, if you don't have someone like a Harvey Sepler on speed dial, I think you're doing yourself as a trial lawyer an injustice first. And it, there's definitely a trickle down risk to your clients because... We're not the all-knowing, seeing eye. When we're in the trenches, very often as trial lawyers, we're <clears throat> bothered with discovery requests, or our minds are wandering about a potential evidentiary issue at trial that really is, you know, not going to come up on appeal. But in the moment, for you know, when you're litigating a motion to yeah. limit or something, it's important to you. But your mind is not always thinking two, three, four steps ahead. And an appellate specialist like Harvey or someone similar to him, there's plenty of them out there in the state um they're an, an, a tremendous resource to come in and kind of give a different perspective and help maybe shape an overall strategy so that you're protecting your client's back end in the event things don't go your right. way because you yeah, trials can be crap shoots, no matter how good or bad um, i
0: i used to when i'd go down to sometimes to the trial to trial courts and i would watch trial attorneys it's it's really it's amazing what you all do it really is because you've not only got your, your all the work that you put in beforehand, uh, and you've got exact witness examination that's coming up, and you've got evidence, of, but you also have to remember how to preserve the record. Correct. I mean, it's so... It's, it's, it's amazing to me that trial lawyers, <clears throat> when they're good, can successfully do that. We don't have that problem, but we inherit the record that the, 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 as it comes to us. So that means if you if in some way it wasn't preserved the way it should've been, we have no option but to go with it the way it is. I've had, uh, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it to Jordan, but I've recently had a, uh, a couple of civil cases, fascinating issues. Really, I thought it was just wonderful, but because the complaint was drafted with sufficient facts that needed to be in there, uh, ultimately, I mean, I, I tried my best. You can beat your, you right. know, the drum all you want. But ultimately, it may come down to that. Uh, I, I've had two instances. One of them having to do with an arbitration in a uh, in, in a wrongful death case. <sighs> the other one had to do with a, a negligence case, the liability of uh, somebody who lived with the, this woman, and ended up the woman ended up committing suicide. And the question is whether he had responsibility for that. And it it, it it's a great great issue. But ultimately, it came down to how it was pled. Uh, yeah, and
3: that and that kind of stuffs matter. I mean, we have been myself and Jordan on the receiving end of a non-preserved issue, right? Right. We had a um, it was a jury trial. One of our first early trials, and the benefit is, is Jordan. You know, I have him there. He does have that appellate experience, but preservation is something that's not really taught to trial lawyers to how to do it. You know, extensively. That's why I like post graduate education from other lawyers and speaking to them is important you know for an example jury selection right this is you know you always see like this is a bad issue but it wasn't preserved right if you've if you've got a um, if you got your panel and then you request additional peremptories because a cause challenge was improperly denied and the court keeps giving them to you until you get a denial from a peremptory request I don't think there's any preservation of any issues. Well, John,
2: you know what's really funny? You bring up jury selection. The very first memory that I can recall interning in the appellate division for Harvey, I'm sitting through and he said, look, here's these couple of cases we're going to have to brief, familiarize yourself with the record. So they're post-trial, plenary appeals. So what do I do? I'm jumping right in. Page one, volume one, I'm reading (laughs) jury selection, starting with the judges, voir dire. And I think somebody else came in and said, what the hell are you doing? Skip to the page where they impanel the jury and see what the trial lawyer said, because if the trial lawyer impaneled the jury without renewing or saying some some carve out language, you know, subject to and not with, you know, waiving these prior objections, we tend to the panel. There's nothing that's going to be preserved and you're reading for for not. Now, at the time, obviously, I'm reading for education. And that's just one example where it's like, even though I was a law student, I know many trial lawyers out there now that don't have the benefit of someone showing them that that stay with me for my career. Right. John and I have since gone on in private civil practice. We won a new trial in the 4th DCA. And part of the issue was preservation, but we won because we use language that Harvey taught me way back when. But anyway, yeah, Harvey, I think your point is a valid one, which is preservation alone can often be the deciding factor, so to speak, on whether a really juicy, meritorious issue on the substance even gets its day in court because appellate courts, and maybe you could shed some light because you know appellate judges, you clerked for them, and you've done this now for many years, maybe you can talk a little bit on the, how important it is knowing that these judges are busy, their dockets are also full, and while they want to do justice, you know, they're not out there to ro- to right every wrong, they're out there to make sure the law gets followed properly, and We're part soon. of that law is preservation. Well,
0: let me just backtrack just for one second, because it's very, I want to just go back to what I was saying before about those, those couple of cases. I don't want to malign the attorneys. Uh, A lot of it, as you guys know and and the people that listen to you, you have to, you you structure things according to the cause of action and the elements of it. And a lot of times the facts aren't known or knowable to you at the time that you have to file the the complaint. So uh, uh, please understand, when I was referring to this, I wasn't making, I was trying to comment that in some way these, these folks didn't do their job they yeah. did
3: well yeah, yeah. but it, but it happens i mean we it happens. jordan was- we, we had a complaint that we played it as a negligent security and not a premises liability and a trial verdict got reversed on appeal by judge rothenberg for that issue and it's like you didn't yeah. th- really true. think how the facts yeah. would play out so it's it's it happened
0: which, which is another reason taking it back to what jordan was saying earlier sometimes it's good to have somebody else in the background, right? That can kind of give you a, another look to it. Now, in terms of the preservation, John, you and I were talking about this the other day. I mean, if you think about why there is that whole concern about preservation of error, it's really the way the court system was worked. Article Five. It was way. It, it, it's the way that the court system is structured. Trial courts are courts of fact. They are. That's where you have the witnesses. That's where you have the evidence. Appellate courts really are courts of law. And they only look, by and large, at issues of law that came up in the course of trial. Now, appellate courts are also set up; they are not courts of land, They're not supposed to be retrial. They are to. They are essentially. An appellate court is essentially like sitting over the shoulders of a trial attorney of a trial judge, and they ask, given the facts of the case. Given what was argued, the complaint, and what the, the parties argued, and the law, did the trial uh, judge make a legally correct decision? But in order to get there, you have to give the trial judge an opportunity to make a legally correct decision. So if, as a trial attorney, if you don't object to something, and if your ju- ob- objection is not contemporaneous, and it's not with spec- said with specificity, you're really not giving the trial judge an opportunity to make a legally correct decision. Right. So that's why there's this whole preservation of error concern. So what does that say to you guys? That means when you object, you've got to, in, in, to whatever extent you can, put one foot in the trial judge's position. Did I make the objection timely so that the trial judge could correct the error and it's not going to be a problem down the road that would either affect the trial or that would involve the appellate court getting into something that they might not have had to, to, to expend their resources. So did you make that objection timely enough? Were you specific on what ground you wanted me to rule on as a trial judge? If it's just, well, it's not admissible, well, that doesn't tell me anything. How can I rule on that unless you're very specific and you need to be? And what was the relief that you asked for?
2: Right. Can I, I, can I interrupt you? Cause I want yeah. you to explain this, the relief you ask for. I know every trial lawyer out there right now who's listening. If they're being honest with themselves has had that moment in a trial where something objectionable took place, you contemporaneously objected. And then you sat there and you thought to yourself in that brief moment, I think I need to move for a mistrial to properly preserve this or give myself the best chance of a, an appellate review later. And then you have that decision like do I even really want a mistrial? Cost benefit, is it worth it, you know? Uh, I know I've had that come up I feel like every other trial I've ever had. Can you explain a little bit more the significance? I mean, it's not that every objection needs to be followed up with a motion for mistrial, but no. there are occasions where just objecting might not be sufficient because you didn't then take the additional step, you know, whether it's rejecting some type of curative that was proposed or asking for a mistrial whatever. Well, think about
0: Think about what it is that you're asking the trial court to do. Supposedly, for example, it's the admission of evidence, and the evidence ought not to come in. Uh, So on one sense, you're saying, well, you shouldn't admit that evidence. On the other hand, suppose it was a comment, by a a closing argument comment, and you want to say, well, it's it's really prejudiced my case, our case. Uh, The relief you ask for is very important, because if you ask for a motion for mistrial and that's denied, then the appellate issue is the denial of the mistrial. It's not necessarily letting the comment in. It's 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 depriving you of the relief that you thought was appropriate. If you said, "Well, the the argument of counsel was Im- improper," and that was it, and the court said, count, uh, "Opposing counsel, don't do that again." Is that sufficient relief? It's it certainly is cured in some way. It's it stopped it from happening again, but. You know, as I say, it's hard, and I believe me, I completely appreciate what you guys go through, but you have to have at least one foot, to whatever extent you can, in the trial judge's position, right. so that you the judge can make a, a legally correct ruling.
3: Yeah, and and that's that's happened to me, and I and I share this with you, and and kind of what what you told me is that like from an appellate standpoint you got to give the trial court an opportunity to get it right first yes right and so when you make a timely objection you lay it all out for them give them an opportunity to do it right because that's what appellate courts want they don't want to be the ones having to come in and second guess the trial court that they didn't get that opportunity but i struggle with this and 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 i know with jordan you know we've been trying cases early in our careers that you know the motion for mistrial or do I request a curative? Is the curative enough? If, if the court says, I'll give you a curative, and then I say, well, I don't want the curative because I think it's too prejudiced, I want a mistrial. And then, well, so now you're rejecting a curative. Are you now rejecting relief from the court? And it's like, it creates these issues that I sometimes don't even know the answer to. I, I, I look at it like, I move for mistrial on everything. It's no.
0: not an easy call. I mean, if you if the judge gives you a curative, right, and even if it's not what you want, you think, well, it's better off... I'm better off with that than than not. Right. And you say, OK, then you've waived the issue.
3: Yeah. And I and back to Jordan's point about sometimes you want to let things go. So we were just in, in the case that we tried. We had very specific motions in Lemonade. The judge was on top of it. And the comment came out from the witness that was not supposed to come out. Judge looks at us. She knows it's a, it's a violation of that motion limine, but myself and Jordan collectively didn't make a deal about it because we knew that it, in, the, in, the, in the grand scheme of how trial was going, we were just going to bring attention to it, right? And we, we didn't it, want
2: a mistrial there. With trial overall yeah. in the aggregate it was going good. We wanted that verdict.
3: Right, right and, sure. and so we, we allowed that to, to pass. And, and what I have done, and some judges go for this, some don't. When you move for mistrial, you can t- ask the trial court and say, I want to move for mistrial. However, I want you to defer ruling on this mistrial until such time as the jury verdict comes back to see if the jury can correct the
2: error itself, right? Okay.
3: Some judges will do that. Other judges will not. You know, oh, I
2: have some that have looked at me Holding the in their mind's eye, at least the proverbial gavel. You want a mistrial? You got it. Just say the words, and then you gulp. Right. Uh, well, that, never mind.
3: Yeah, and, <laughs> no, and, and we don't. W- we had a trial like that where we we had, you know, essentially it's it's a judge that I work with. We have a great working relationship. I didn't even want to move for mistrial. Jordan said he was a spectator. He wasn't trying the case with me. He says you have to. It's for the client. It's not about what relationship you think you make. Because he basically called me disorganized in front of the jury. He was like, Let me, let's take a break so maybe, you know, you can go and get organized, right? And and he, so it gives the suggestion to the jury that I'm a disorganized lawyer and coming from the robe that could be prejudicial, right? right. So he comes back in. I make, I, I finally, Jordan, convinced me I move for mistrial, and then I say, you know, he says, let's just, let's get through it. You know, we'll, we'll deal with that. He allows me to finish cross-examination of the defense's corporate representative, and it goes amazing. Like, the best cross that it could have happened in this case then when the we're judge addressing- took
2: his foot off the gas. Let's be right. real. He he was tailgating you in a, you know to using a crude analogy. He was tailgating you to see any misstep you were going to make during cross, and every single time you were doing it before the break, he was right there to kind of chastise you in front of the jury, and that has a devastating effect, I think, in the aggregate. And then after you on that recess, basically moved for mistron said it's improper. You have ruined tarnished my image in front of this jury. He then. Mom was the word unless something egregious came up and it allowed you to finish delivering what was ultimately the most impactful cross-examination in that trial, which resulted in a multi-million dollar verdict. So. Right.
3: And, and so what happened was I gave the judge, I said, now let's go back. He said, let's go back to the motion and, and you know, for mistrial. And I said, can we wait to see? And he says, no, I'm going to rule right now if you want me to. And so I, I said, can I have an opportunity to confer with my client? He was like, that's fine. You know, so I talked to the client, we talked to Jordan, and we collectively decided to withdraw the motion. So, you know, there, there's ways that you, yeah. you know, that sometimes you think an issue may be bad, that sometimes it's better to to try to get relief. Even if it's a curative or an admonition or something, like, don't do that, disregard that. And, and jurors are smart, like, you know, but sometimes cat out of the bag, you can't fix it. So, yeah.
2: Let me, let me do this if i can because i i want to switch gears a little bit and i don't want to lose sight of the fact that I, I it's important to me that we talk about jl in, in a pretty large degree but before we get there i want to stay in the civil realm just for a bit and talk a little bit about earlier stage issues that arise that i think trial lawyers sometimes have a bad habit of saying well i can't take an immediate appeal and you know, by the time we try this case post judgment, take it up on plenary review, who's going to care? You know, like maybe a discovery dispute, for example, is like a is a clear example of this. Right. Harvey, maybe you can explain to the trial lawyers out there. Yes, not every adverse ruling on a discovery motion or something warrants immediate interlocutory review. However, there are occasions, especially when you're representing a you know human beings in a personal injury case, like for example, let's say the Florida constitutional right to privacy is a basis of a legal objection in the trial court. Let's say you're using that as a basis to say, judge, no, the, the defense can't have this discovery. And the judge just snap overrules it, grants a motion to compel for the defense and says you got 10 days to give it. You know, no attempt to put the, like any kind of intermediary stopgap, whether it's in camera view or anything. So I guess what I'm really saying is in a general sense, are there some situations early on in civil litigation where some uh, trial order things can be taken up on interlocutory review? Well, you
0: would probably, if it's a discovery, you'd probably want to go by certiorari. Uh, right. so the cat out of the bag type of thing. And that the, the, the test for certiorari is different than on appeal. It's a three-part test for cert. It's a departure for the essential requirements of law, material injury, and no relief by way of appeal after the case is over. So it's a different it's a different test that you would use for cert. Than uh, than the the non-final appeal under nine one three O, it's different. There, are, I would imagine that there are times when it's uh, when it's it's significant enough for you to want to take cert early on, because you also don't want to waive it, right. and you also don't want the the discovery to happen or not happen when it should. That's why I say, I mean, you all know your case. You know what's significant. That's why I was saying John earlier when you were talking about, John, about that you and Jordan make strategic decisions. And that's really the way it should be. It should be. You know your case better than anyone's going to know it. Um, you know, depending on the strategic decisions, it may affect whether a relief is available to you or not. In terms of discovery, I suppose that that uh, if it's a significant one, you could file for cert, a cert petition in the middle to see at least at that point you've also preserved any objections you've got
2: to it can, yeah, can and I... some people out there who, do, who are doing the trial stuff exclusively they might have the false impression that i have to wait until after trial to appeal anything and you know generally of course that's going to be the rule but there are exceptions to that and sometimes not always but sometimes it's appropriate to do that whether it is to protect your client's right to privacy or maybe something more meaningful which is like you know there's a trending issue that hasn't really gone the way of the plaintiff's bar, or the defense bar, whichever side you're on, and you finally have a good vehicle for it. How are you going to know unless you have someone like Harvey or someone else with similar appellate experience who you can call on and ask, you know, because I guess the flip side of any appellate token is sometimes it's strategically beneficial to not take up a quote unquote right. bad case and risk making, you know, gray law even worse. Yes. Yes. Right. So there's, there's definitely an issue of selection there
0: but but let me just go back to one thing if if it's a discovery issue and of course you know this already you're going to go to the appellate rules and see whether the rules allow right. you to take a non-final appeal and i i don't think that's going to be the case with discovery violations so you know you're talking about cert and it probably wouldn't they they probably wouldn't offer decision render a decision i would I don't know that that's the case. It's rare.
2: We've te- we've done it on a handful of occasions over right. the years,
0: and I think right. So it wouldn't have necessarily have any dispositive effect on later cases. But you know what? You're absolutely right too. You, if if the case is marginal, or if the issue is marginal, uh, you're you're in it for the long haul. Right. Your your it goes beyond your case, and so you you need to pick and choose what are the best cases to take up. You obviously want to do the best for your client, but there may be times where the where the, where the law is not entirely clear, and this isn't the case to bring it to the court to make it clear because the facts of this case uh, make a, a, a good decision less likely.
3: Can, can right. I ask you guys this question? Because you, know, you guys are both appellate lawyers. What I tend to see as a trial lawyer is I have a very visceral reaction to what happened in a trial, and then you get the transcript And on a cold transcript, it doesn't come out as bad or as egregious as it's felt to me at trial. Does that factor in any way? I mean, you've talked to the Pell judges. I mean, does that when they're reading a cold transcript, they don't have the benefit of being there. You know, Um, does that factor away in in any type of of your approach to handling an appeal or? I'm going to give an
2: example, but I want Harvey to answer. We just recently, John, one of our cases in front of the third district, we won. We won, but during oral argument, then Chief Judge Emis said, "Well, Mr. David, during your argument to me today, you're emphasizing certain words like it was said like this at trial. But how do I know that from the transcript? You know, he called me out on that, and I thought it was it was a fair criticism. I wasn't doing something intentionally. I was at trial. I knew that's how it was emphasized. But this goes to John's point. So Harvey, maybe you can explain. Well, that's a actually, it's, it's a great Dean.
0: question. It's a great question, and 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 the answer of course it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how Zoom." Trials affect that whole that whole scenario because now they can actually see, but it's a legal error, and the court uses a, a, a reasonable person standard to see what the effect would be, and that's why when you when you when your trial and a public counsel makes an argument and closes an argument is improper, you need to say not only I object to it, but here's why and here's what it can do to the jury. Here's what a reasonable jury how they would likely react. To the argument that you just made that helps the appellate court okay because now they can see well you know obviously this this could has the potential of affecting uh how the jury would feel i mean i'm doing an appeal right now commercial appeal and uh uh without getting into the specifics of it the clients uh you know are very th- th- they've been really harmed by this action and they've been wanting to appeal this they are wanting to and they've been wanting to describe it in a certain way. But I have to kind of keep myself back right. from the emotion of it and just look at it as a purely legal issue. That's why the analogy to a surgeon coming in is so important, because they're coming in no matter what <clears throat> position the, 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 the patient is in in terms of what he or her, her is or her background would be or anything else that might be going on with that patient. They're coming in for a specific purpose and it's a very discreet purpose. And, 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 so, and, wh- and they know that once I resolve that purpose, that patient goes back, and it's the same way here. Unless, of course, you're talking about having an appellate attorney uh, that you consult all the way along. We come in to help you resolve a specific purpose, and that's all.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and oftentimes I've learned, I, I say the hard way, because I don't know any other way, describe it but you, you know you fall flat and you get yourself up and you do better the next time you know fiery or emotionally charged language has a place and it's not in an appellate brief or oral argument I agree you often. know I,
0: I know that when I clerked at the, at the court um, we would sometimes go down and, and watch the oral arguments and there were trial attorneys again I'm sure they were excellent trial attorneys but they would argue to the court as if they were arguing to a jury but of course appellate courts aren't courts of fact right and the and the equities uh are, has a different meaning on appellate as they do in trial and trial judge trial appellate judges i don't think they particularly like that yeah they don't like, nor you know on the other hand trial judges when you argue to trial judges they're 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 interested in the law but they are more uh, you know uh, involved in the case and so you can make a more impassioned plea to them ultimately their decision is going to be on the law
3: right hopefully
2: yeah now, i, I think- know most trial lawyers out there i think i speak for most trial lawyers when i say oral advocacy is what they emphasize most in terms of skill development and all that but you have the obligation i would say the responsibility <laughs> as an appellate lawyer to be compelling in oral and written form And as someone who's seen how you draft and so detail oriented and you have a very good ability, one that people in CLEs talk about just generally is, oh, you should try and boil things down into plain English, make an issue simple so that anyone can understand your position. You do that better than anyone else I've ever read. And I've read some really interesting briefs by really accomplished practitioners. And I I continue at this stage of my career to try and do what you do and have taught and still teach law students, which is. On the written side of things, there is no issue so complex that you can't find a way to either analogize it to something more simple or find better language that can boil it down so it's easier to understand. And maybe you can talk a little bit about persuasiveness through a written brief or motion. Um, you know, if it gets too clunky or cluttered up with complexities, sometimes it loses its efficacy.
0: Well, I absolutely agree with you. I, mean, when I, I remember uh, on the 3rd, they used to have a ju- uh, there was a judge, Joe Nesbitt, who was Great appellate judge. I really liked him a lot, and he used to say, "Well, oral argument is like you talking to your next door neighbor over the fence that divides your property, and if you can't, if if after that conversation, he has no idea what you've what you just said, you haven't really, you haven't really been <clears throat> persuaded him as to anything. I'm sure that in patent cases or some of these uh, very technical cases, it's difficult to understand. I got it." bankruptcy cases or other things but generally the cases that we all they're they can be they're very simple they're really it, it my dad who is a longtime attorney wonderful not a litigator but a wonderful lawyer he used to say well you know when you're dealing with these cases close the book every once in a while and walk away go for a walk go to the gym do whatever you need to do and I tell my students the same way the same thing just close it up for just a little while, go somewhere else and just think, what makes this so important? Why is this such an important issue? How will it affect not only this client, but others in the client's position? If you can't be really simple about this, you may not understand it well enough. I mean, I, I was, sometimes you get so engrossed in things and so emotionally charged into the things that you're working on, that it's hard to extricate yourself. I once heard
2: you say during a moot court practice round uh, to me or maybe my teammate, but it was to us. And it it was something to the effect of everyone in the room knows why you're passionate about this position. You're the advocate, but why should I care You know, as the judge? And I think this applies equally at the trial and appellate court stages. At the end of the day, you have to know your audience. And if you're writing briefs, or delivering oral arguments to embarrass the other side or you know stick needles in the other side and humiliate them you know you may get personal kicks out of it but you're not doing anything to persuade the bench right. um you know they're there for an entirely different reason and so um, i don't know maybe you can talk a little bit about that about you know writing or speaking to the audience that you want not the audience that you think you turns. know it's
0: it, when i write like when i was working on the, on, uh, on one of the JL briefs the one that went to the florida supreme court you know, the perspective is different when it went to the U.S., but in the Florida Supreme Court, I, I, I had organized my stuff where I where I, I broke it down, the argument broke it down into subsections, into sections and subsections. And each subsection or each section, I always concluded. I know it sounds very simplistic, and I understand that I'm sort of taking that out of context, but y- y- you look at it like you are taking your reader or your listener, or the juror, or whoever, by the hand. And you are walking them through, very gingerly, through the case. And each stumbling block along the way, you make sure that you've convinced them as to that one, so that when you get to the next one, and you convince them on that one, and the next one, ultimately, when they reach the end, they, they, they oh yeah, of course, that's the answer. Because when you tell somebody what the answer is, a lot of times, the hair goes up on the back of their neck, and they're thinking, "Well, can I really believe this person? They're, they, you know, they're they're an advocate for this or that. I'm not sure. Maybe I should listen." To you. I, you, ideally, you want them arriving at the same conclusion you did, and that you want them to think that they got there on their own.
3: Right. So you guys are essentially performing inception. You want to supplant the idea and allow it to grow itself.
0: People are committed to the position that they've arrived at after thoughtful or whatever they do. Right. And they've reached it. They're committed to that. They don't really want to shake that. I mean, you can try to convince them to shake it. You don't want that. You want them getting to where you ultimately are going to be, and you want them to think that they got
3: there on their own. That's actually interesting um, because I think you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, human nature... The strongest opinions that you can have are ones you felt that you developed yourself right and so if you know that's kind of like when you guys and look I'm not an appellate lawyer my 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 only appellate argument was from a county court into circuit court sitting in its appellate capacity when I was a solo on a, they vacated a default judgment the trial court and I went up and got it re put in place on on appeal right um yeah i mean but there was no one on the other side they they set it for a uh, oral arguments three years after i filed the brief you know that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) um you know so so you guys you guys i mean that's why you lay out the roadmap. you know you ultimately know what this is what i think the court should do let me show you how you get there and then you give them that that law those facts those brief facts that are relevant to the appeal and let them make that determination um so i think The same is true kind of a trial from a jury. If you say this is what you need to do and this is your opinion, but no, you give them the facts and evidence to allow them to come to that conclusion on their own of they were wrong, they were harmed, the defendant's responsible, and they're entitled to to compensation. Yeah, I mean,
0: if you think about it, when you stand up there to the jury, they don't know you. Right. Uh, Obviously, they're forming a quick impression of you, but they don't know you, and they don't know whether they should trust you or not opposing counsel gets up and gives a, a characterization of, of, of the facts that are entirely different than yours. They don't know you, so to, to the extent that they can see you as one of them, mm-hmm. that you that you are empathetic, not only to your client, but that you are one of them. You're not really that much different than right. the other jurors. Then they can trust you a little bit more. And so I think a lot of times uh, people write, like if they write a brief or whatever, that that they it just Bombards people, you know. bombard you. This is what the law is. This was terrible. This has got, you know. Your reader isn't necessarily going to be so receptive to it. Right. You've got to take them by the hand, whether it's a brief or oral, and walk them through very gingerly, so that they get to where you ultimately want them to be. And I went to a when I was at the uh, early in the PDs, the, uh, which what I thought was the best CLE I've ever been to. It was at, at Florida State, and it was an appellate one. Uh, and there were two, it was two days. The first day was about writing. The whole thing was just about writing. And the second day was giving an oral argument. The first day, they had no lawyer. They had no judges, they had no lawyers presenting. None of this they had lawyers. There were no attorneys that presented in either one of those two days. The first day about writing were all newspaper reporters and, and editors and basically, what they said is, we have a limited amount of time to reach our audience. You look at a newspaper, you're going to know in the first few paragraphs, or whether it's on screen these days, but you're going to know in the first few paragraphs whether this is something you want to get in, you want to read more about. And if, I, if, if, the, if the writer doesn't grab you in the first few paragraphs, you're gone. You're on to somewhere else. Plus, if what you write is too cumbersome is too difficult for me to get through. I'm gonna stop reading what you've done and I'm gonna read what the other side says. Or I'm gonna give it to a law clerk to read. I just don't have the time to go through all this stuff. Uh, and then you've lost your audience. Your audience is the judge. Right. So if what you write is too, is too thick, same thing to you, you guys do trial, you do memos, you do motions. If the stuff that you've got is not interesting, if it's not easy for me to understand what you've read, and, um, if it's too cumbersome, too long, then I'm going to stop. You got you got a certain amount of time of my attention. So, uh, and, and the same thing with oral argument. The second day was oral argument. No lawyers. It was all actors, co- acting coaches. And it was great in, in terms of where how you want to stand, how you want to... And you've got it you know you, uh, John you were saying earlier with 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 working with the trial advocacy program it's so valuable to learn from people who do this as as, as a line of work and so that so in, in your point Jordan I mean with the students and I've had I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of students I've been teaching appellate advocacy for 20 25 years something like that all year long and I've, I, I just like you Jordan I've had some opportunities to work with some really wonderful attorneys or attorneys-to-be. And, and what I try to impart to them is exactly the same thing that we're talking about. You know, a number of years ago, uh, the Daily Business Review, so a while back now, but the Daily Business Review had done a lead article on what are the best qualities of attorneys when they come out of law school? What do we most look for when we're hiring new lawyers? And what, what are the, the things that they, that they are best at and least at, least equipped at doing, by and large, with the attorneys that come out of law school? And the number one hands-down thing was the ability to write. We're not talking about appellate now. I'm not talking about appellate. Just across the board, it was the number one thing that, that law firms look for when they hire attorneys at a law school, and it is the number one weakness that they thought that in uh, brand new attorneys have, to, uh, have a problem with is the ability to write. Writing is absolutely critical. You do it every day in what you do. All the attorneys that are working with you, they, you, you guys do it every day. And sometimes people don't give that adequate thought or appreciation to how what they are what they write is actually going to affect their reader, the person that they're most trying to reach because you're so darn busy. Right. Understandably so. Uh, so at least.
2: Well, it, I don't, you know, I don't mean to be uh, <clears throat> cheeky by any stretch, but I mean on the appellate side, it's called a brief for a reason. And <laughs> you probably heard 10,000 people say something similar, which is brevity matters. It's a, yes. uh, it's, if nothing else on a base human instinctual level, I think it's, a show of respect to the reader, your audience, the judge.
0: I 100% agree with you. I mean, I can tell you the rule, the appellate rules, not that I'm a better appellate attorney than anybody else, but I will just tell you, the appellate rules give you 50 pages for an initial brief. It's rare that my initial briefs are more than 20 to 25. When I was clerking at the court, there was an attorney who's long since passed, but they talk about him still. His name was Sam Daniels. and I remember, and this, he had, he had passed away a lot longer than what I'm going to tell you. Even though he had passed away maybe 10 years before that, these judges still talked about him. They still talked about his briefs as being short and too, you know, right to, to what it is that it had to be done. So you're absolutely right. I mean, brevity is a very big deal. Put yourself in, in the judge's position. You got 25 cases that are ready to be read. You got a hundred briefs that you have to go through. If you're gonna read a brief of mine and it's not easy, it's not plain language, it's not interesting, it's too long, it's it's all over the place, you're gonna put it down. You just don't have time. So, you and you're gonna give it
3: to your law clerk, you say, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> or, you, right. or they're gonna say, well,
0: let's see what the other side has to
3: say. So then, so then from the appellate standpoint, I mean, <clears throat> Is is I mean look they they both serve important fundamental um, I guess aspects of an appellate argument is the brief the writing and then the oral but since that's your first impression is the brief writing really more important than the oral aspect yes. of it
0: Yes um, I, it's like I used to say about the brief you know if I'm holding a, a piece of paper when I, when you hand in a brief just like when you hand in a motion or a memo, you are telling the court, this is the best that I can do. This speaks for me. I've taken all the time that's necessary to compile something that is well-researched, well, uh, well-argued, is consistent with the law. There are no mistakes here. That's what you're saying when you give them the brief. You, what you are saying is, you can take my brief and you can read it anywhere, on an airplane, I don't care where you are. Everything you need to know about this case or about this issue is in this brief. Right it here. speaks for me. So if you hand in something that's got lots of mistakes or is too whatever, you're saying something about you,
2: or even too one-sided, right? Like you get slick and you know leave out a case that's adverse to your position, oh but you goodness. know it's on point.
0: Well, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a cases come and go, right? your reputation is going to stay with you from for your whole career yeah uh and 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 there's there are there you should never scrimp on your on your reputation
3: well i think jordan had a big um appellate issue regarding it was like uh the assignment or the whether they <clears throat> an arbitration provision ran with the land for a homeowner, to a it right. runs with the land to a subsequent purchaser. I think it's up on Supreme Court review, but this was a renter. So Jordan, in you know they they moved to compel arbitration. We were against it. He actually said this is the seminal case right now that's actually up on appeal. They never even cited it. The other side moving to compel arbitration. He says this is the law. They said it it can run with the land with particular provisions to a subsequent purchaser but here's the distinction because it's a tenant, right? And he, and he added some constitutional arguments and all these kind of things, but gave them the case that the other side never even cited hmm. and then cited a rule that was actually not in effect at the time of the assignment. It was actually a later rule, but then tried to use it and apply it retroactively. So it, we, they ended up, trial court went with Jordan, and at first, which is interesting about it is because it's, it's in a different county, and we kind of got hometown when we started out. But now Jordan has demonstrated this is the law. It's correct. He gave it to them you know, properly, cited all the cases, even ones against us. Trial court went with us and was affirmed on appeal by the second DCA, who was the right. one who decided that decision, saying it did run with the land for a subsequent purchaser. Cool. So, you know, that what you're
2: referencing. Can't run from the fight, I correct. think, is the right. lesson. Because, and it's, it's about Canada the court. It's about your credibility, reputation, like Harvey said. At the end of the day, though, it's also about, like, being honest with yourself about is this do I have a legitimate position or not? Because if the other side through mistake, oversight or mishap, whatever, they, they serve you up a softball and you know you can knock it out of the park, but you really know that the law is throwing you a curveball or a knuckleball, you still need to be able to hit that out of the park. And I think you just gotta tell the court, I'll hit both pitches right. and here's why I'm not running from it. But
0: and, and the court is more likely to trust you, not only right. in this case, but in future cases. If they if they get wind of the fact that you're playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts, or you're not really citing things, or you're missing or you're misrepresenting things, that can be absolutely devastating to you for you to for your career. Yeah, you absolutely don't. The rules of professionalism are there for a reason. You deal with the attorneys in in a different aspect than I do, and and, and I know unfortunately there's too much gamesmanship that go on in appellate in in, in, in a litigation <clears throat> or. In a, and that's unfortunate it, it goes with the territory it's unfortunate right. just you have to fight it you know each of each of the people that are working you have to fight it because it's your reputation man as I say cases will come and go and and, and a year from now you'll be into something else and that case that get caused you so much consternation earlier it's gone it's gone
2: well cases come and go but state of Florida versus JL lives forever. <laughs> so let's let's gingerly walk our audience through this. I'm going to tee it up kind of with some bookends, but I really want to spend some time walking through this once in a lifetime experience for you. You know most lawyers out there, even people who do nothing but appeals will never get a case in front of the United States Supreme Court, let alone win, let alone unanimously. So let's let's give the jury a little bit of a, a tee up of the facts and then you can you can drill deeper. Uh, JL was a case out of Miami-Dade County. There was a criminal case in the 90s where there was an anonymous tip of a black male wearing a plaid shirt, having a firearm. And the police who responded saw, I think, three or four teenagers or youths. One was a black male in a plaid shirt, and they did a stop and frisk, a, a, you know, a terry frisk, so to speak. And they found a firearm. And as often comes up in criminal cases, the defense filed the suppression motion under the Fourth Amendment. And as I recall from the procedural history, the trial court granted suppression, but then it went up to the third district. And for the listeners who aren't in Florida, in Florida, it goes trial court. We have five intermediate appellate courts. They're called DCAs or district courts of appeal. This one went up to the third, which is over Miami-Dade County. The third reversed, meaning finding with favor of the, the state, if I believe. Then it goes up to the Florida Supreme Court, who goes back and agrees with the trial court, suppression was appropriate. You find yourself in Washington, D.C. arguing to Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time and his court, and you ultimately prevailed in the unanimous 9-0 opinion in uh, 2000, written and announced by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So can you kind of walk us back? I mean, that is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'm sure one you haven't forgotten. So pick any point in time in the process, but kind of walk mm-hmm. us through how that happened. Well,
0: you know, it's it was a surprisingly simple case. It really was. I mean... Uh, there wasn't much. It was a suppression hearing, so it, they're not very. It wasn't very long. Uh, uh, it was simple, and basically, you're absolutely right. What happens is, is that uh, we we think. I, mean, I shouldn't say we think. It was the record seemed to uh, was argued to the court that a neighbor had seen these three kids, and they were in a <clears throat> bus shelter. I don't know if you, if you remember bus shelters too much, but it was one of these sort of plastic Sure, they're things. littered
2: with personal injury attorney ads. Right, in the exactly. There you
0: go. <laughs> but anyway, these kids were there during school hours. And so according to the police, we don't know because the, the call never was never recorded. According to the police, somebody had called and said, there are these three kids out here. Here's what they look like. One of the kids is wearing a plaid-colored shirt, and underneath the shirt is a gun. Six minutes later, two cops get down. It was right here on Miami Gardens Drive uh, on 27th Avenue. Six six minutes later, two cops get in. One comes from the front. The other comes from the back. All right, kids, up against the shelter, and they frisk them. Uh, As you know, or certainly Jordan knows, a frisk for weapons is is much more intrusive than for drugs, as an example. And sure enough, they found the gun under the plaid shirt. So that kid, they kept the others, they, they let go. And they charged him with, with three different offenses. Uh, and you're absolutely right. The trial court, when they, when they came to, uh, for trial, a suppression motion was filed, that there wasn't enough of a basis to, to stop these kids and to frisk them for, for weapons. There wasn't enough. All there really was was this phone call. Right. But the phone call was never recorded, and the cops never got the the name of the person who called, so there might not have been a phone call, or it might have been a phone call from another cop. We don't know, and and and, and, and you know I'm not making, of course not making a, any kind of statement that cops are bad. They're, it's, I'm not doing that. It's just a matter of what the evidence was. You didn't know that, so okay. So go to the third district. The trial court are granted. State takes it to third. Third, affirm. Uh, I'm sorry, reverses. But Judge Schwartz, who was chief at the time, he's since passed on, had made a a sentence, in his opening sentence, to my surprise, the law is that it's enough. And here's why that was. And this is what made J.L. so important. It was the first case in the country that had ever decided this way. Everywhere in the country, federal and state, had all said, when there's a risk of of a dangerous weapon, then an t- anonymous tip is enough. So, for example, suppose you're driving along and somebody should say, well, I see this guy weaving back and forth in his car, but they never record the call and they don't know who made the call. Is that enough of a basis to stop the car? Well, they're, the courts are now trying to backtrack a little bit on JL, so it might be enough depending on, on, on where you are. Anyway, uh, reversed Schwartz wrote what he wrote. I thought that was very
2: interesting, to my surprise, because he was just a brilliant guy. So- and by the way, let me just give context. I'm only interrupting for 10 seconds because I don't want to give a criminal law lecture. But back then, I mean, still now today, but back then, especially Terry versus Ohio coming out, that being the law of the land, Alabama versus white, you're talking about reasonableness, reasonable suspicion. And back then, with I think it was Alabama versus white. Was there sufficient uh, predictive features or you right. know, particularity. So that's kind of the issue here. It's not whether, in a vacuum, it's constitutional under the Fourth Amendment to run up to somebody based on an anonymous tip. It's what about the tip if it's anonymous gives you sufficient reliability to right. to act on it. Anyway, right. so go ahead.
0: And 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 uh, be, the state took it up. They took it up to the to the U.S. Supreme Court. Had it gone the other way. And no, the had, Florida Supreme Court. I'm first. sorry, the Florida Supreme Court got a number of decisions out of the Florida Supreme Court. They were sort of split on it, but they they ultimately ruled in our favor. So then, this that's when the state took it up to D.C. Had it, had the Florida Supreme Court not ruled in our favor, and had I taken it up to D.C., they never would have taken the case because it was the first one. It was the first one that really threw all the other law out there into a kilter because they, they had to get some resolution to this thing. And as I was- Now give per-
2: context to the jury, was it, or the jury, the, our audience listen to me, bad habits. Um, <laughs> was this the first time, whether as a petitioner or a respondent, that you had a case pending review in front of the Supreme Court or not? Yeah,
0: I think, I think it was. I mean, I've since had other cases that, I, I know Jordan, you and I worked together with Jeff D'Souza on it. There are other right. cases that I've taken up there, but this was the first one, I think. And actually, this was the first case out of the office that had ever gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. Where they Can you bring us it.
2: inside that office, if you don't mind? It doesn't have to be the deliberative process per se, but what are the feelings, whether emotions, nerves, excitement? I I'll mean, tell you know, you the here truth. you are, you now prevailed statewide. Well, and... I'll tell you the
0: truth. The office was wonderful. They, were, uh, you know, I was thinking about it, had this been other places, the senior person in the office might have taken the case. Once the True. U.S. Supreme Court, accepted it and i only knew they accepted it because and i was i was actually <laughs> actually somewhere with my kids and i got a call from a dc lawyer who was kind enough to want to take the case away from me <laughs> so that i did i could get on with the other stuff that i had that's how i knew the court t- took the case irrespective uh, the the pd's office was wonderful they really were they they let me keep the case uh Beth Weitzner was the chief of the division, Andy Stanton, who was at that time a rising member of the, uh, of the appellate division. Both of them worked very, we all worked very closely, the three of us. Uh, but they didn't take the case away, and I was so thankful for that opportunity to, to do this. And we did the brief, and as far as the brief goes, this is, the, I should tell you, this is not the only time that, that I've won a case where it's <clears throat> the first one in the country. I had other, uh, at least one other case where all the law had gone against me, and I was fortunate enough to to to, to prevail on that issue. Uh, this one, it's absolutely true. In <laughs> you know, most states, federal, they'd all said, "Where it's a gun, all bets are off." And you can understand, if you will, just you know, just kind of step back for a second. What are the police supposed to do? You know, they get a they get a call that there's they get a tip, assuming that they actually got the tip, right? What are they supposed to do? And I, I did a lot of moot courts, as you can imagine, uh, and I had some absolutely wonderful attorneys here who would, you know, moot me as it were, and they asked some really great questions that made you pause. I, mean, I remember Valerie Jonas, who was one of the attorneys in our division, and now she's in private practice, had said, I'm pretty sure it was Valerie said, well, what if? Uh, This involved in the middle of the afternoon, the police get a tip that there's this child, this little child that's been kidnapped and is in the trunk of a car parked on the street in broad daylight, and they have no way of, they don't know who owned the car. What are they supposed to do? And And there's, Did you have an answer for that? Well, sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. That one, well, I, I... if there's time to get a warrant, you get a warrant. I, I don't know the answer. Right. I, I really don't know the answer to all these things. It's been a long time since I've looked at this stuff. Uh, I remember there was another one who said, supposing that the police get a tip that, uh, that it's not called the Gerstein Building, which is the criminal courthouse down here. Uh, they get a tip that there's some guy who's wearing plastic explosives under his shirt, and he's on the, the, the third floor of the Justice Building, and it's on a timer. And you got to admit it, and then it's going, I just thought you guys want, may want to know, what are the cops supposed to do? Right. I mean, I suppose the answer would be... You know, be... that's
2: interesting you got that that example, because, and I don't want to jump way no, ahead. No. I don't want to skip any of the boot, but during the org, uh, the argument before the Supreme Court of the United States, which is available, you can hear it at OEA.org and other places, I think it was Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor at the time, might have been another justice, who actually tossed you a similar one about a movie theater but somebody having a bomb in it. Right. So. I,
0: I remember Justice Breyer's, uh, the bomb mm-hmm. question was a very interesting one because, and as I'm sure you guys do deal with this in your practice, you, 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 you look at how far you can extend whatever the principle is that you're, that you're trying to make, how far that extends before it becomes ridiculous. Is there a limit, and, and I've, I don't know if you remember from classes, Jordan, but I've often said that when you're certainly an appellate attorney, you're drawing a line in the sand. And you're saying, on this side of the line, I win. On that side of the line, I don't win. And the line is made up of facts. So under this side, I win, that side, I don't. What happens if the line moves? How far can you can you pick, take this line, till uh, to you reach a point where the principle that, of law that you're espousing no longer applies. Right. The bomb situation was an interesting one because you knew that was out there. I mean you knew right. it. What are the police supposed to do and you try to be fair to everybody. You've got a position but you also try to be fair for the uh, to the other side because you you know you want to understand so you can make a reasoned argument. So what do you do if there's not enough time, if there's a bomb question, what do you do? And I remember the office said, well, be very careful of the slippery slope because if you say, well, a bomb is different because of the urgency, well, what if it's not a bomb? What if it's a guy holding a, you get a report that the guy's holding a gun on somebody. I don't know, I mean, you could think of oh, the, the, the baby in the trunk of the car. How far can you go? before you lose credibility. And, and, I, and the office had said, well, be very careful. I wouldn't concede anything. Don't concede anything with the bomb. Because if you do, you're gonna have a hard time cutting it back. Where do you draw that line then? Uh, and I f- actually found a bomb case, one case in the country that was here in, in Lauderdale that was close. It was on the Fort Lauderdale Airport. But generally speaking, I'm thinking, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Hopefully I'm not going to get... Sure enough, in the oral argument, Justice Breyer said, well, what if it's a bomb? And I do, I did exactly what they tell you not to do, which is, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> and then I try to duck it, you know, say just whatever. And then he asked it again. And I, you know, I'm trying to duck it with whatever I can. And then Justice O'Connor steps in. And she said, well... You didn't answer Justice Breyer's question. Something like that, which is not what you want to have that. Yeah, big gulp. Yeah, big gulp, absolutely. Uh, and when they wrote the opinion, Kennedy, uh, uh, I, th- I think he had a concurrence. It's been a while since I've looked at it. And he was saying, uh, somewhere along the line, they said that it would, would not necessarily apply in a bomb situation. But you know, like, it was a great experience for me. And it, it kind of helped crystallize even in what you guys do you have to you're not a racehorse with blinders on you have to be able to look at all sides of this thing and now, I'm did often, you moot
2: that case in dc at all i mean yeah that's I'm glad local. you
0: brought that up absolutely uh george uh georgetown law school has an appellate clinic and they offer for free that you can get a moot court before people before the argument so Andy and I went up to the argument, and we did the mood court first, and uh, it, was her- it was horrible. They were all, the, the 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 people in the court were all former clerks of the U.S. Supreme Court. These were folks who really knew their stuff. And, I mean, it was, they were just asking such difficult questions. And after the oral argument, a former law clerk for Scalia came up to me. And he, you know, he, you, know you got a tough job. He said, here's how you're going to win it. And you mentioned it yourself, Jordan, with the Alabama versus white case. He said, start out with that. That's your first line. This is not Alabama versus white. And th- that becomes your last line because that set the standard. I know we're you getting said into said, "If
2: week- I, I remember because I've listened to this oral argument a hundred times, I think. I think you told the court very early on after your name, this is Alabama versus white but without the right, predictive without features.
0: the predictive features. Um, and, and, and But the bottom line to the whole thing is – I tried to be very simple about how I approach these things. You do it in what in your work, you have to do that. It was a great experience, and the oral argument I thought went very well. As a matter of fact, I finished, you know, it was interesting, when I was in moot court in law school, and I was on the board, and I was doing my little thing, and I was so nervous, so terribly nervous, and my partner, well, she was cool as a cucumber, smart, Just great. The night of the oral argument, I'm fine, and she's in the bathroom throwing up. (laughs) Because I think, and and I'm sure you all are the same way. You reach a point in your preparation where you you know what I'm. I'm where I am, and this is the best place that I could be. Mm. I've done as much work as I could possibly do. And once you're at that point, and once you've thought it all the, the, the things that are obstacles to you, once you've thought about that and you have answers for them before you go into it, <clears throat> then that's it. You just have reason to be nervous.
2: That's a really good point, I think, for anyone out there, not not just those with good fortune to find their way before the United States Supreme Court, but I remember even way back as a certified legal intern in Florida under certain conditions with the bar, I don't know off top what they are, you can argue in courts, trial courts, appellate courts, right. what have you. And Harvey, you were kind enough, you let me do the oral argument with the appellate division's blessing uh, for a juvenile appeal to the third DCA, when then uh, Chief Judge Frank Shepard was on the panel and a few others, and I walked into the law library in the court the morning of oral argument. And Obviously, as a student, you're letting me argue a real case, I had prepped it, there was like there was no tomorrow. And I remember walking in and feeling nervous about the experience, I didn't even, I had never even been in the room before, but calm about the argument. And you look around, and sometimes there are very seasoned lawyers out there, they've got Red Wells they're thumbing through binders, they're tabbing out the record. And it like it made me feel like, am I doing this wrong? <laughs> Should I be more nervous? And, and I think to your point, because you had prepared me for that, you had always said, by the time the argument comes, you know it cold, and that's just the end of it. You, that's not the time to prepare. Um, but in your case, in jail in particular, you had something, it's not unique. It happens in the Supreme Court with some degree of regularity. But it's unique enough for a practitioner who's been up there you had two advocates against you, so to speak, because as I recall, the court had asked an Amiki to come in and argue kind of in companion with the state of Florida against right. you. Is that it's right? The,
0: the Solicitor General's Office. And, right. and that, that, that oftentimes happens to represent the the, the, the government. And they, did, and they took a much more reasoned approach than the government. Again, the issue was if, if the report assuming that it, was a, that it happened the way it was, the police say it happened. If the report involved a gun, then all bets are off. You, you, you just, you know, you have to deal with it right away. Uh, and and, and I, I, I think, going to that just for a second, I remember when I argued it in the Florida Supreme Court, I said, uh, what happens if, and I use this, this is a crazy analogy, I said, supposing you got these high school kids and they're dating. This guy's dating this, this girl. And she breaks up with him. And he's waiting at her side of her house for nights and nights and nights because he, you know, he really wants to be with her. And he sees her go out on a date. And he follows them to the movie theater. Actually, I think I used the Riviera Movie Theater by the, by the University of Miami. And he watches them. And he gets out of his car. And he sees what movie, what movie they're likely going to see, what time it is. And then he goes home and he calls the police. And he says, "There's this girl, and here's what she looks like, and she's with a guy, and such and such. She's carrying a purse, and they went to see the eight o'clock feature of this movie, and she's got a gun. And I don't know when, but at some time during the the movie, she's going to pull that gun out. She's going to this, of course, was before the Aurora, Colorado thing. Right. Right. At some time during the movie, she's going to pull the gun out and she's going to start shooting people. What do you expect the police to do?" And what, what should they be allowed? What, what should be permitted to do? They don't know that this is another kid. Uh, and, and you know, they turn the house lights on, they pour this girl out and they frisk her in front of everybody, up and down the legs and all that, only because of an anonymous tip. There has to be a point where that that's, that's not gonna be enough.
2: Let me ask you, um, going into the oral argument before the Supreme Court, and then coming out of it, maybe that night you finally got to sleep, did you, I mean, we always love to prognosticate, even if it's amongst ourselves privately, but, oh, I think the judge is going to rule this way or the jury will do that. How did you feel going into it, and how did you feel coming out of it? We know the actual result, but yeah, yeah. What, how did it feel? Great question.
0: I think I was probably numb going into it. I mean, you know, I'd slept. I, mean, I felt confident that, that at least we were prepared. Andy was with me. Uh, coming out, I actually felt very good. I really did. The, the position, just to go back for a second, the position that the Solicitor General had taken was the more reasoned approach. Uh, the state's position was, well, it's a gun, that's it. Theirs was a more reasoned and, and, and I felt that could be problematic. But I remember coming out of the court the courtroom, when you enter into the Supreme Court when you argue, you enter through the side, through the lawyer's entrance. But coming out, you go through the front, you go out the front with all the big steps. And there, at the bottom, were all these people, that were and, and these, these these newspapers. I remember Nita Totenberg interviewed me. There were all these people about our case. It's about our case, and, and there was just and, and I'm listening to all the different lawyers and pontificators or whatever they talking about interviews about this case, and it, it was that's when it really hit me how right. special. Yeah, that kind of just time. gave me chills. Oh yeah, my there. gosh, it that's was just cool. it was it was really cool. And and I you know I remember, you couldn't. Uh, you, there, obviously, there were no cameras in the court, and the Supreme Court still aren't. But there were there were uh, CNN, there were other th- uh, 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 reporters, and they had artists, and they would draw.
3: Did you get a Did you get a I got I got picture? a nice
0: big picture, and I got a signed opinion from from Ginsburg.
3: That's awesome. He sent wow. me a signed
0: opinion, uh, and if you're arguing there, you get. <laughs> they have these quill pens these two white uh, pigeon quill pens. And so I, I it framed in my wall uh, the two quill pens, and, and Ginsburg signed a copy of the decision. But it was a very cool experience. It was a, obviously it was something that, that the whole office...
2: Do you had. remember when you found out the result? Though? You remember getting the call about them taking CERP, but do you remember hearing or how That's you heard a great about question. the
0: result? You know, I really don't. I really don't, I have to remember, but I really don't. I remember there were some really crazy things that happened in that case. I know that uh, there was a Harvard Law professor who we've probably all heard about, who had called me up and said, I'd be willing to write an amicus brief for you. I said, fine, that's great. And I dealt with all of his staff, but then he wanted to argue the case. And I said, no, and he withdrew the, the amicus thing. I had the NRA and the ACLU on the same side. I mean I really structured all this to make sure that, that I had everybody, all the bases covered. Wow, that's interesting. Had it. And and that's it was a great, great experience. I know that Jordan and I worked on a on a case that the court didn't take, but it was equally if not more to me more moving. Uh, but it was that was uh, a
2: Miranda issue. I, yeah. I, I cherish that experience. That I, I still a, think back That to, was a
0: great case. I'm, I'm still, I'm, I still don't understand how they, why they didn't take the
3: case. Well, well, like you said earlier, were you seeking jurisdiction, or were you in that? Yes, well, that may be it. That may be it. But it
0: was. And we a, didn't
2: have the Florida, the benefit of a Florida Supreme Court right. opinion, as I recall. It had ended at the district court, which may or may not factored in. But that was, that was what an incredible experience that was. You know, sometimes you have to
0: be really. It's it's hard to, to think about doing it in in the legal area, but you have to be sort of really creative. Uh, and and and, and make sh- something that makes you stand out. For example, I had a case, and I don't know how much time you guys have for this. And you know, if you gave me something to drink, I could be here all day long. But uh, <laughs> it uh, is Cinco de Mayo the day it were. It is Cinco this, de Mayo right? exactly. But I remember I had this case in Key West where uh, uh, the cop stopped this guy who's who's leaning into a car talking to his girlfriend, and he drops with, with They knew who he was. You can always hear it as you're reading the transcripts, hear these cops get out of the, the police car with, with the jangling keys. I don't know if that's true or not. But nevertheless, and, 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 and please understand, I'm not anti-police whatsoever. But with that said, the defendant, because he knew that they were going to be questioned about something, he drops a piece of paper on the ground and he runs away. They ultimately catch him. They, they were been looking for him for some reason. It's been a while. And they had the piece of paper analyzed and found out that it had a little cocaine on it. So they charged him with possession of, of, of co- cocaine or marijuana, whatever it was, and he ultimately got convicted. And I remember when we were doing the appeal that I, I started looking, and the law was just completely against me on this kind of thing, but I started uh, doing research in other states and in federal, and even in Canada, to, oh, I know what it was. It was a dollar bill. That's right. It was a dollar bill that he had. And he dropped on the ground and ran away. And I started doing research, and I found, <coughs> especially in Canada, the Royal Canadian um, Police or whatever it was, that when, when money goes in, when, when it gets recirculated at the, in the Federal Reserve, it goes on these big drums. And so if, they, if you have a tainted, if you have drugs on one bill, that drug could get on the, dr- on the drum. And then every bill that comes after that has a potential of having drugs on there. It was really interesting. So anyway, I don't want to, you know, get to too much, but no,
2: I mean, look, when you go, when you have a career as storied as you do, you're going to come across a ton of fascinating issues. And I think, um, maybe ending somewhat near where we started, which is, uh, trial lawyers out there should be encouraged to take on some appellate work. Um, see how the sausage gets made so to speak on that side and i think it'll benefit you it benefits me even just reading another lawyer's trial transcript um, it really has a way of speaking to you in a different way instead of just being in person so there's a lot of benefit to doing the appellate work but i think the lesson learned here is if there are so many people out there who specialize in appellate work harvey's not the only one right. and many of them are fantastic resources and i will say in a bit of like free advertising. I hope, I hope people don't mind, but I find that people just like Harvey, because you're not the only one, although I, I go to you first always, they tend to be very generous with their time. And I find it's because people who really care about appellate practice care about the law. And if they care about the law, then they care about making sure things get handled the right way. And uh, so reach out there for resources. I, I Look, let me just say this as we bring this thing in for a landing. I'm super grateful that you came on this podcast. I, it's an honor for us and for me that you were the first you know, non-internal guest. Um, and it means it means the world to me because I have my whole career to this point and into the future. I think about you often and, and your words of wisdom when I was your student. And uh, even now you're so generous with your time and, and willing to talk through an issue with me, sometimes talk me off the ledge. No, that's not a good one. <laughs> and so I just want to thank you for carving the time out of your day and for everything you've ever done for me and, and the clients who don't even know it. Indirectly. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I I just want to thank both of you, too, because this is a you're great lawyers. You've got a great firm, wonderful reputation. And the fact that you're doing this podcast uh, is really something to to special that you do. So thank you very much, both of you, for for having me on.
3: Yeah, no, and I appreciate it. You know, being the kind of the non appellate lawyer in the mix here you know, with my limited experience, <laughs> it's always good for me as the trial to have the insight of both of you guys. You know, I'm very fortunate to have Jordan as my partner as a great resource for me uh, as well, but
2: to have you here, I'm really yeah. happy, happy you could join us. So thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. We will see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Over and out.
1: Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for plaintiffattorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast.